Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we welcome Rachel Damagowski. Rachel, can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, so I am a math PhD student here at MSU, and I'm currently working on a project that involves graph theory and social network analysis. What does a PhD in math even look like? So when a lot of people hear that I'm doing a math PhD, they assume that I am in about Calc 100 by now. But um, most math classes sort of switch into different fields, just like any sort of science would. So what I'm studying is more about solving puzzles, and graph theory involves a lot of visual pictures. Um, So it it sort of breaks away from the standard math that you would think about. Can you please explain a little bit more what graph theory is? Yeah, so graph theory is not like drawing functions. I think that's what um, comes to mind. And it's also not pie charts, bar charts. Um, When we talk about graph theory, what we mean is just some set of points and lines that connect them. So if you thought about, say, a connect the dot picture, you have a bunch of dots and then you draw lines between them. You could think about that as a graph. Um, And we call those points vertices and the lines between them edges. And what do you do with this data? Uh, One application of graph theory is in social network analysis. So let's think again of some picture that has points and lines. And let's make each one of those points represent a person. So maybe this is one of the classes you're taking at MSU. Make each student in your class one of those points. Now, the edges between them could represent some sort of relationship. So those edges could represent friendships or a a colleague relationship, maybe a student and an advisor. Um, And we would draw that edge in if that relationship is present. Well, that's really interesting. Is the information that you're looking at, is it simulated information or are you looking at real world information that you extract? We're doing both. Um, So in some context, we want to sort of test whether our math models work in a certain way. And we will use empirical data that maybe someone in sociology or psychology has uh, obtained. And then in other cases, we want to sort of generate a bunch of random examples and see how those affect the models. Just to get our audience on the same page, what do you mean when you say you perform this social network analysis? Instead of thinking about like Facebook or Twitter as social networks, let's instead think about the relationships we have with each other that can be our social network. So my personal social network might be just who I interact with on a daily basis. And we could look at the social network of our entire classroom as who everyone interacts with. So just social relationships between people would be a branch of social network analysis. The topic of this work sounds extremely interdisciplinary. Are you working with other mathematicians when you're performing this kind of research, or do you work with specific sociologists and psychologists that collect this data in the first place? I'm actually working with both a professor, Dr. Bruce Sagan in mathematics, and Dr. Zachary Neal, who's over in uh, psychology. So it's very interdisciplinary right now. And how does a relationship like that even come about in the first place? Um, I was approached about it, so... Bruce knew that I liked graph theory and that I kind of wanted to find something more applied. Graph theory is thought of as what's called pure math, where 
the applications maybe we see down the road, but you're not immediately working on them. Um, so he approached me with the project. My assumption is that you get the data from Dr. Zachary Neal and then you apply it with your research with Bruce? Uh, so Zach is actually doing a lot of the actual research and we are taking the data from various other sources. So one of the data sets we're using is actually government data between senators and bills they've co-sponsored. And that's just publicly available on the web. So we wrote a program that allowed us to take that and make it manageable for our research. Other data comes from um, older work in sociology. So there's um, a Southern women data set that records uh, women and what parties they've attended. And it's very well known, so we're using that as well to test our methods. That's cool. You use publicly available data and you use the example of senators and passing bills. So what kind of data do you get from that? Like, do you find out what kind of party they're in? And like, what kind of factors are you looking at particularly? So with the senators and the bills they've sponsored, our goal is to figure out who has a political alliance and who could you say is in a political antagonism. So who's avoiding each other? And what we're doing is we're taking this data of senators and the bills they've sponsored, and we're trying to figure out who has sponsored more bills together than we would expect on average, and who has sponsored less bills together than we'd expect on average. And if you think about this, it gets a little complicated. So let's say we just want to say two senators are friends if they've sponsored at least one bill together. But then maybe someone writes a bill and it says, Puppies are cute, so everybody sponsors the bill. So now we would say that every single person in the Senate is friends, and we probably know that's not true. So now let's say, okay, maybe they have to sponsor at least 10 bills together. But now we have this issue of Democrats are probably going to sponsor more bills with Democrats. Republicans are going to sponsor more bills with Republicans. So the value that we choose between two people, it's going to change based on what we know about them. So what we're doing is creating methods using math that can tell us whether those two people, based on how many bills they've sponsored and who they've sponsored them with, um, if we can expect that to be significant in a sense that this relationship is important and we wouldn't expect it in a randomly simulated situation. Well, you are right. That is pretty complicated, especially because politics are pretty complicated. So what if we take it down a notch and we modeled a kindergarten classroom where everyone comes into a classroom and they don't know each other? How could we predict if they're going to be friends or not or enemies in kindergarten world? These methods are actually super important for looking at um, classroom situations involving children because through the IRB, we're not actually allowed to ask children negative questions. So we can't go and ask, you know, who are your enemies? So if we want to figure out who is friends or not in this classroom, maybe there is some data that we can look at, such as what clubs these students are in um, or what games are they playing at recess. And now maybe we see that two of the children are always playing the same games at recess, then they're probably more likely to be friends because they're interacting together often. Or two other students are always doing completely opposite um, 
things on the playground, so maybe they're less likely to become friends. But at the end of the day, you're trying to understand what different models best represent whether or not you can predict if groups of people are going to end up being friends with each other or not. What kind of models are you looking at in the first place? We are looking at different ways to sort of randomly model what's going on. So if we think about the Senate example, um, what if we say that instead of Senator A sponsoring bills one, two, and three, what if we say that that senator can sponsor whatever bills he wants or she wants as long as they still sponsor three of them? And maybe bill number one, we don't care who sponsors it, but we do want four people to sponsor it. So we start playing with what happens if we sort of shuffle what everyone's doing um, over and over again. So this is going to give us a bunch of different random examples. And then we can compare what is the actual number of sponsors for this bill. Is it way more than what happened when we sort of randomly shuffled? So there's several different ways we can do that. Um, different algorithms that we can write. And then we can test if those algorithms are giving us what we um, either expect to happen or if they're giving us drastically different things, what is that going to mean? For clarification purposes, what do you mean by shuffling? Like, are you shuffling the same people in the group or are you adding more people to shuffle within the group? That's a great question. We're keeping all of the people the same and all of their activities, whether that's sponsorship or games they play in the playground, keeping all of those the same. And then we're just changing who did what activity. And possibly maybe they sponsored a couple more bills, but just a few, or a couple less bills, just a few. But all the actual people and events are constant. Considering the level of complexity that goes into this kind of analysis, is there any room that machine learning can help improve your analysis of these models in the first place? Thought about it. I don't have a machine learning answer yet, but we did just write a, a package for R that contains some of these methods so that other researchers can test them out um, and see what they tell them about their own data. And what is R? R is a programming language. It's open source. It's free to use. Um, it's used a lot in statistics. And if you want to try out our package, it's called Backbone, and you can download it through the CRAN repository. That actually leads up into my question because I was wondering how are people going to get the, the program? So it's an open source thing. You just post it online and people are able to use it whenever they want? Yep. So R is like, um, like Python. Um, you just download it to your computer or you can use an online server. Um, and then you just tell it which packages you want to install. And you can upload your own data and then run it through the program and it'll output, um, in our case, it'll output who should be considered friends and who should be considered enemies in your data. Well, this is great and all, but coming from a physics background, I've always understood that just because something is mathematically possible doesn't mean it's necessarily physically possible. How do we know that the mathematical models that you're using are actually going to really show that uh, certain people will be friends and certain people would be enemies? So this is something we're actually working on right now. Um, so in certain cases, we kind of know what to expect. So this gives us sort of examples where we know we're on the right track. Like with the senators, we know what party they're in. 
So if we end up with data that suggests the two parties are polarized, which we know they are, um, then that is a good sort of check mark for us that our models are doing at least kind of what we expect. But what we actually want to try to do is write an algorithm that gives us a ground truth. So that would be um, sort of like if we start with the end result, if we know who is actually friends and enemies, can we back that up and create a situation where we say, knowing that these people are friends and enemies, now let's say we placed them in these different clubs or organizations. Now when we use our models, do we get the same results that we know we should get? So we're writing algorithms right now that do that so that we can sort of test the models on the ground truth. A term you've used a lot throughout this interview is ground truth. What does that exactly mean? So the ground truth is really just the actual true result. So if we run data through a model and we get some prediction, the ground truth would be the actual friendships, the actual um say, enemies between people, um, and not what our prediction is. So maybe our prediction gets really close, but the ground truth is the actual values. So, for instance, with children, we can't actually ask them who their friends and enemies are. And maybe they won't tell the truth, right? They might lie. Um, but if we could actually sort of read their minds and know, that would be our ground truth. And how do you take into account the children lying? So that's actually one of the reasons for doing this um, in the first place is, especially when we're asking about negative relationships, um, there's a multitude of different reasons why people might not give you the truth. And also when you're talking about networks, say you're asking about a classroom, that's a lot of individual relationships to ask about. And people might just forget, you know, maybe you're best friends with somebody, but we went through 30 names and you forgot at that point. Hopefully not. Thanks for taking the time to explain those different terms uh, that are really relevant towards your research. And since your research is based on graph theory, what has been your favorite part of graph theory as a whole in the, in the first place? My favorite part about graph theory is how you can take sort of these complicated mathematical ideas and frame them in an easy-to-understand way. Um, so, for instance, one of my favorite theorems in graph theory uh, we can all sort of think about right now. So say you take out a map, whether it's on your phone or one that's in your car, and we look at the number of different colors on the map. So usually we color two countries if they have a border, we color them in different colors so we can see them easier. So mathematically, we only need four colors to ever do this. And it's called the four color theorem. So someone thought about this way back in 1852. They wondered how many colors you could use to just color in a graph so that no two colors are touching. And this took all the way up until the 1970s to actually find an answer. So pretty simple to state question, really hard graph theory mathematics to actually prove that it was true. And it ended up actually needing a computer to solve. What do you mean by the two colors not touching each other? Like two colors on a different spectrum or physically not touching each other? Physically. So if we had, say, a map with of the United States with no colors, just black and white, and we wanted to color states so that if they were bordering, so Michigan and Ohio, we don't want to color both of them green because then it would be hard to read. 
appropriate color, Michigan green, Ohio red. Appropriate color choices. Exactly. In this four color theorem, is it any particular four colors or it could just be any random four colors? Any random four colors that you choose. Even if they're close by each other, like blue, green, or yellow, green? Yeah, so the all we're looking at here is if you can always do it with four colors and you won't ever need five. So there's no map that you can create that'll need five or more colors so that no two of them are touching. Even if it was like the Midwest where you can have a state surrounded by a ton of other states, could is that basically like you're just varying the color to every other one if they're next to each other? Yep. So if there's, say, one state in the middle and then like a circle of states around them, maybe make the middle one blue and then the other ones alternate, say, red and green back and forth. And what motivated you to get into math in the first place? I've always liked math, and I've always been decent at it. I originally thought I wanted to go into medicine when I started um, school at Central Michigan, and I decided to just take a, another math class um, because I liked it and I thought I could you know, fulfill one of my prerequisites. And I ended up wanting to take more and more math classes, and I figured that was kind of a sign. And they also made me play with bugs in biology, so I knew that I wasn't going to go down that route. Um, but I've always sort of liked just solving puzzles, um, and I find that that's what I get to do a lot of, especially in grad school. So it's been fun. Is there any advice you would give to any of our listeners that are maybe struggling in their Algebra one class in high school right now that uh, could hear from someone that went into college and decided to pursue math? I think that we can find that math sort of isn't everything with how the world works, but everyone has a different learning style. So a lot of times with learning algebra, you're sort of learning this new way to think, this new way to sort of solve logical problems. And a lot of times we just need to sort of change how we look at it, try different methods, and math is sort of like a sport where a lot of it comes down to practice. How did you realize that you wanted to go to graduate school after? Since you first thought that you were going to go to medical school, how did you make that transition? I decided I wanted to go to graduate school after participating in what we call RE Youth, so the Research Experiences for Undergrads. Highly recommend if anybody um, sort of likes problem solving, um, likes school a little bit, uh, wants to sort of dive deeper into sort of mysterious places in science, uh, do an RU. So I did two of those in undergrad, and I realized that I really like just sort of thinking about these problems that no one knows how to solve yet and seeing if I can figure it out. So you're sort of solving a puzzle that you don't know what the answer is. I think it's really interesting that you're taking such a theoretical field that people consider to be only touched upon by mathematicians and you're connecting it with such a softer field, such as the humanities and sociology and psychology. With that being said, what are you interested in doing to use your math PhD in the future once you graduate? I think my ultimate goal is probably to figure out how to use some form of math to solve crimes. But I don't know how to do that yet, and we might be diving into tech industry or academia along the way. Hey, who knows? Maybe you can help uh, predict who might actually co commit a crime before it actually happens. You never know. There we go. Be a real-time superhero, but with math. <laughs>
exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us this morning to talk about a subject that a lot of people are often intimidated by and to show that anybody can study a field as long as they find some sort of interest in it. So thank you again. Thank you guys for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles. <laughs>